This is Connected Nation, a podcast focused on all things broadband. From closing the digital divide to improving your internet speeds, we talk technology topics that impact all of us, our families, and our communities. On today's podcast, we talk with Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida, who in a recent op-ed pointed to high-speed internet, also called broadband, as an imperative, not a luxury. We'll explore how he believes the country can close the digital divide by taking a page out of history and looking at success seen through a program during President Eisenhower's administration. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Connected Nation. I'm Jessica Denson, and today we're talking with the Honorable Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida and the first Republican to be reelected governor in the state's history. Welcome to Connected Nation, Governor Bush. Jessica, it's great to be with you. We're really glad you joined us. Um, We asked you to join us today because of a powerful opinion piece you wrote for Slate. In it, you share why you believe providing access to high-speed internet in all communities is critical for America's future and how you think it can be done. Now, I want to break down your position on all of this, but first, what led you to speak out about this need for expanding internet access? Well, Jessica, for the last, what, seven months now uh, or more, I've been in, uh, in, in my office or in my home, which is two stop signs and two yield signs from, from my office, uh, with connectivity, with uh, high-speed internet, and I'm thriving. Our businesses are thriving. We've been able to uh, inter- interact with people in a way that uh, is highly productive. My health is better, um, and I'm connected uh, with devices in the home that that uh, give me a signal that that uh, if there ever was a problem, I would know about it. Uh, and children, my grandchildren are, have broadband, and they're they're thriving in school. And then you you look at other people whose jobs have been wiped out whose teachers don't have broadband connectivity and, and they're, you know, a majority of students, all students were quarantined in the, in the spring and many are still stuck at home. And if you don't have access to the internet, uh, you're not going to be able to learn. And the learning gaps that are growing are going to be devastating for the next generation. So as it relates to economic activity, as it relates to health and as it relates to education, we're creating the digital divide is creating strains that will play out in our society in really dramatic ways. And it also creates an opportunity, I think, to think differently about this and to develop a national strategy implemented locally uh, to, to be able to deal with this uh, uh, opportunity to be able to provide access to opportunity for everybody, not just those that already have access to high speed Internet. The pandemic really has uh, put a spotlight on this issue because, like you said, for you or even for myself, it, we have that access that we need in this critical time. But those who are left out are really suffering. Absolutely, and um, you know, look—if you're cut off from the world, uh, you're cut off from opportunity. And uh, the social costs of this, the health costs of this, and certainly, as I said, for uh, particularly for young kids. The um, inability to interact in a, in a classroom setting uh, creates isolation that's going to create big, big gaps in learning that will um, far exceed what we have now. We already have a big challenge in education with uh, roughly half of our students graduating from high school that, and, and, and they're neither college or career ready. Uh, those are abysmal numbers. Those numbers will grow without um, uh, a strategy to make sure that learning should be 24 seven. 
Uh, eventually, we'll be back in the classrooms for sure. That's important for social development. But uh, this is an opportunity also to change how we educate so that, you know, that time becomes the variable and learning the constant. And harnessing technology in the proper way will, will uh, make that uh, aspiration a reality. Do you see it that there will be um, kind of a, a hybrid of classroom learning where we do a lot more at home and remote learning? Are you seeing some of yeah. that, do you think? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm the chairman of a foundation that advocates uh, uh, integrating digital learning into the uh, classroom experience. You could imagine a system where, as I said, time is the variable and learning's the constant, where students learn at their own pace in their own way. Uh, homework could be done in the classroom where a dedicated teacher could deal with remediation and making sure concepts are understood. And new material could be, um, could be learned at home. And parents could be much more engaged in this. That's, that's the 21st century education system that would, I think, accelerate the learning gains, particularly for low-income kids that right now are really struggling. Let's go back to the piece for just a moment. Uh, I would like to touch more on education in a few minutes. But in the piece, you point to the program of uh, President Eisenhower that led to building our current interstate highway system. As an example of what can be done when we tackle something as a country in a unified way, talk a little bit about why you really look to that program as um, a positive example of what we could be doing now. Well, think about it. Eisenhower, uh, after World War One, was given the challenge to uh, create a new logistical um, system for the military. It was a vast country. Um, they were planning for you know the defense of the country, and what he found was that it was nearly impossible to be able to traverse the country because there wasn't adequate highways. In World War II, it became really essential that that system uh, existed. It was certainly better nearing World War II than it was just after World War I. But I think embedded in that frustration became an aspiration, what I like to call BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals that uh, Eisenhower advanced, which was to build an interstate highway system it was expensive. Uh, I'm sure at the time there were a lot of people saying well, that's a waste of money. But in reality, the 230 billion, more or less, I think it was uh, in real in, in today's dollars, created trillions of dollars of economic activity. It wasn't a federal spending program. It was a long-term investment in our future, and uh, the benefits of connecting this vast country of ours uh, in the in the physical realm was really important for um, the, the birth of, you know, the most prosperous country in the face of the earth. Fast forward today, uh, digital infrastructure is probably um, as important as physical in infrastructure, and we're lagging behind. And yet the opportunities, if we take advantage of this crisis, this pandemic, the opportunities to have a similar kind of uh, economic boom based on a long-term commitment to build digital infrastructure out to every nook and cranny of this country, I think, uh, is really important. So Eisenhower, I think, can inspire a 21st century digital infrastructure strategy. And frankly, Jessica, the possibilities, um, this isn't just a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's likely uh, in the post-election environment that there's going to be a stimulus package. I'm not sure what they'll call it, but the House version of that uh, that passed a month or two ago had $100 billion for uh, digital infrastructure. And I've talked to philanthropists and large corporations and people that are interested in this across the country. 
All of them say that this is an opportunity for us to act in a very strategic way to build out the digital infrastructure so everybody can benefit. I'm, I'm really actually quite positive and of the of the possibilities, and I think I think we can execute on a, on a really uh, creative plan. As a Republican, fiscal responsibility is very important to you. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not making a huge leap there. You also, um, as the governor of Florida, you boosted the state's reserve funds while reducing the state's tax burden. So being smart about how we use money is something that you don't take lightly. So uh, can you expand a little bit more about how you think that investments like that $100 billion, $100 billion investment and that type of thing really is going to have a return for us as a country? Well, I'd say two things. One, um, as a conservative, I, I actually kind of tire from hearing people on the other side of the political equation talk about investments in things. Everything's an investment. It's not spending. But if you're spending on, you know, uh, on an on a ongoing basis, on a sustained basis, year after year after year, uh, that's likely to be spending. But if you spend, if you spend one-time monies that have long-term benefits, that's an investment. Uh, whether it's the government or a state or local government or the federal government or a business, that's a capital outlay that uh, should have a return on investment. And in this case, you can measure it two ways. I think you can measure it on what clearly people say if we if we roll out 5G uh, and it's and it's accessible to every every place in the country, there will be increased economic activity that helps pay for the the uh, initial investment. Secondly, this money will be leveraged with philanthropy, with businesses uh, that are teed up to be able to um, uh, expand their reach in the in the digital space. And so I think you can clearly make a case that this would have a significant return on investment. In addition to that, whether Republican or Democrat, it seems that this is a very bipartisan issue to you. And at running as part of Connected Nation, we have seen that too. It's a very neutral, we can be very neutral with it. It's something that all constituents seem to care about. But you, I want to quote you for just a moment. You write, the White House, Congress, our nation's governors, philanthropists, and others in the private sector should take the lead in addressing the digital divide in a coordinated way. I think coordinated way is very very important there that you say that you call for a digital infrastructure plan um, that kind of falls in line with some of the things you've been saying. Uh, how do you see a way forward with that? Is that through partnerships, private public partnerships, um, uh, all of us doing this together in a, in a, in a unified way? What would you envision that to look like? Yeah, I, I don't think it can be top down. I don't think it can be, you know, directed from Washington, DC. The country is vast. The country is diverse the needs in Kentucky are different than the needs in South Florida. The rural areas of, of our country have dramatically different uh, requirements to be able to access digital infrastructure than, than in the urban core areas. So I think it has to be a national priority implemented regionally or at the, at the, at the local level. Um, and there are great examples of this. I'm, you know, this is this is your field, not mine. I know that you all um, cover this extraordinarily well. Uh, but there's there's great examples of philanthropy being engaged. Chicago has had the Crown Foundation, Family Foundation, has been actively involved in making sure that devices are available to low income students during the pandemic and even prior. They were they were working on this. Uh, similar other businesses and business leaders in Chicago have done that. That. That movement is now expanding across the country. Um, there's existing institutions that could lever their, their involvement. The uh, rural cooperatives 
could provide uh, broadband through through their uh, infrastructure, through their networks. I think the FCC could play a constructive role to, to be part of this as well, to accelerate the development of broadband, particularly in the rural areas. There's a lot that could be done. Maybe uh, the next president could, you know, form a commission of really smart people uh, that, that uh, I'm sure that there's, there's enough smart people in D.C. God forbid if there's not, uh, to be able to develop a blueprint that then local communities and states could then embrace. Uh, I know governors are very excited about this prospect, particularly in the rural areas where there has been, you know, look, here's, here's the deal. Google's not going to open up their headquarters, I think, until the summer of next year. I think I read that. Mm-hmm. So people are um, abandoning all these high, you know, densely populated areas that cost a lot where the quality of life has diminished. Maybe they could go back home. Maybe they could go to the places <laughs> where they grew up, where uh, they could grow their family and where they could have affordable housing and, and work as productively as they were working in, in, a, in an office building. Well, if that's the case, we're going to see a flourishing of the rural areas of our country, which is where we need more population. And um, I see this as a incredible opportunity to uh, to allow people to live purposeful lives. And and so I think there's uh, there's broad support for this. You're absolutely right. This is one of the few places where um, you know good policy and good politics uh, occurs, and there's bipartisan support. Very few other places I can think of in policy world, I can make that claim. We have definitely found that as working with in partnerships. I think you've hit the nail on the head, much of what you said there. Let's move to the the pain point of the lack of access. You wrote in, in your, that same op-ed, um, disconnection can disenfranchise. I, I, that really struck me as an important issue, whether you're talking about education or healthcare or teleworking, which you just mentioned. Um I also know that you mentioned earlier too that you're part of the foundation. You started the Foundation for Excellence in Education, so you really have a stake in education and giving your time and energy to it. Can you talk a little more about uh, the importance of connecting kids right now? Sure. Look, um, there's as we watch uh, the protests uh, for racial equality uh, taking place this last summer. economic justice issues that, that people are very passionate about. And I, I support all of that. I think it's important for people's people to express their first amendment rights. What I'd like to see is people to be marching in the streets for the inequities that exist in our, in our uh, country as it relates to the access to the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are we, the, the, the idea that somehow that's not important when the internet and digital infrastructure in general is driving most of the productivity that exists in our country today. The rollout of 5G is going to create enormous opportunities for job creation, for investment, for improved productivity, for enhancement of our lives. And if you don't have access to it, uh, that those that inequity is going to grow and grow, and there'll be social strife because of it. Uh, and it starts with schools. Uh, became so clear. Look, 400,000 teachers don't have access to uh, high-speed internet. So we sent them all home because uh, the schools were unsafe. Okay, that that worked in the spring, but now there's still a large number of students that aren't in school and teachers can't access the students. And there are school districts in this country that say, if we can't provide uh, education to everyone, we're not going to provide it to anyone. I mean, this is ridiculous. And so um, rather than complain about, you know, 
There's a lot of people that are in the grievance mode these days. I think what we ought to do is say, let's fix it. Let's create a strategy to fix this, to give people a chance to achieve earned success, whether it's in jobs or enhance their chances of living a healthy and, and more purposeful life or that their children get access to a high quality education. This isn't the only thing we need to do in K-12 education to reform it, but this is an essential part of it. It's a critical part. Ten years ago, we created a, a, um, uh, an entity called Digital Learning Now, where we created a set of policies recommended for the states to embrace to be able to um, allow for digital learning to become uh, an integral part of the learning experience. And it, it did okay. I mean, there, there are states like Utah and Florida and others that have done a pretty good job in that regard. But now it becomes critical because of the pandemic. And my guess is that um, education at home will become more of the norm rather than the exception going forward. So we better have a strategy to make sure everybody can access it. We couldn't agree more as a, a nonprofit. And um, even before the pandemic, 12 million kids fell into the homework gap, which is, you know, the gap that they have access at school, but not at home. And now I think people who have kids or don't have children are now really seeing the impact and how this can affect us all. So uh, we agree it has, something has to be done. And we've been talking to school districts around the country about what they're doing. Some school districts, like Lockhart in Lockhart, Texas, Lockhart ISD is actually working with a provider to build towers to get to their kids and, and funding them for 10 years. So administrators, schools are definitely taking this seriously too. And I think as a country, we should as well. And, um, that was highlighted by the pandemic. Another issue that has been highlighted by the pandemic has been healthcare. And in, in the, uh, the op-ed you wrote, the irony of the situation is that for years, policymakers have struggled to improve healthcare access. Today with broadband, we finally have a tool to improve healthcare access. We just have to access it for everyone. We did a series of webinars and one healthcare provider just in Michigan told me that their health, their telehealth visits during the pandemic went from the average in January and February of 2,100 visits to 257,000 visits in April. So yeah. <laughs> you, ha you are definitely, uh, you've got your finger on the pulse with that one. Talk a little bit about what you would like to see happen in the telehealth space. This is a place that um, there's massive amount of private capital moving into the space whether it's um, information technology that can be able to monitor um, all sorts of vital signs for frail elders to keep people, you know, keep families intact and keep uh, frail elders who cost uh, Medicare and Medicaid a substantial sum of money when they're in institutional care. You, we now have the ability to monitor uh, people's health and provide direct communication through text messages or other means to be able to give advice on exactly what a, a, a caregiver needs to do to keep mom or dad uh, healthy as it relates to making sure they don't fall, as it relates to making sure they take their medicine properly, uh, that they're eating right. All of this now is through connectivity. Uh, you, you, can, you can prevent illness, which ultimately is what our healthcare system should be about rather than reacting to, mm -hmm. uh, to illness. Right now we spend you know, trillions of dollars um, reacting to bad healthcare outcomes. And I think our strategy now, again, the pandemic creates an opportunity rather than a problem, the opportunity to move to a preventative healthcare system and rewarding that other than obviously the good health is, is the biggest reward, but there's tremendous savings to be made as well. And uh, people that are sick 
you know, have a harder time getting jobs. People that are frail can't live a purposeful life. Uh, they put strains on the family. So this is another great opportunity. Telehealth is just one part of it, and, and it's an important part. But there's other parts that relates to health technologies that can be plugged into a home that, that are phenomenal. I mean, it's incredibly exciting to see this go on. And so why wouldn't we want to accelerate all this positive developments in our lives by making this long-term investment? I, I think, again, I'm, I'm not complaining because I do think there's broad consensus that this is important now. You're referring a lot to the to the remote uh, monitoring devices that we see, where people can can monitor everything from their from their heartbeat to their blood levels, you know, to all kinds of things that are coming out. And it, there's a lot of innovation happening in this space right now that we're seeing. Yeah. One thing I do want to touch on, though, uh, as governor of Florida, you increased health insurance coverage for needy children and um, helping the elderly and developmentally disabled. This, uh, you, you briefly mentioned it, uh, that this could be something that having access to broadband can help these populations. Do you really see that we need to focus on helping those, those groups of people specifically? Well, my, my general attitude is that the most vulnerable in our society should be in the front of the line, mm-hmm. not the back. So you start with that premise and you think of the struggle. If you have a, if you have a child that has um, chronic illness, the strains on family life are, are pretty, and, and you have, and you're of low or moderate income. The strains on family life are are difficult. If you have a loved one who has uh, significant development dis, de, developmental disabilities, your biggest fear is outliving your child. I mean, these are the issues that come into play. And anything we can do to harness technology to allow for caregivers to provide the compassionate care that these that uh, people with significant health conditions deserve, I think we should do. And it's, this is a place where you can save money by doing it. Because the, the simple fact is, if, if, if you have someone with um, significant health issues and they become acute, they're going into a hospital. Or if they are frail, they may be going into a long-term care facility or a nursing home. And the costs of that far exceed community and home-based uh, health care. So this is a this is another societal trend that is of real positive benefit, but it does require connectivity for every home, particularly low income uh, families. Let me just get your final thoughts before I let you go. What would you like to see happen in the immediate, like in the, the very near future, and then long term in this space? Well, I'd like to see. Uh, I think the long term will take care of itself if there is a inducement to first a strategy. And then an inducement, principally by the federal government, to induce more investment in all sorts of areas of this of this um, of the digital infrastructure play. So, the first thing would be to make sure that there is uh, a significant sum of money. It doesn't have to be a hundred billion dollars, but a significant sum of money in the stimulus to be able to develop the strategy. The second is to have a broad conversation about what that strategy should look like, including all sorts of players that are already engaged, like your uh, organization and many others, to be part of the, uh, the solution. Uh, and then get after it. Get on with it. You know, this is, we're really good now as a nation about talking about things. <laughs> so, I think it's time to like roll up our sleeves and begin to solve problems. So presidential leadership would be really important here. I think governors are poised to be able to play constructive roles. And um, the private sector is already investing significant sums of money, but 
they're not going to invest in the areas where it's unprofitable. There has to be some recognition that the cost to to um, create broadband access in the rural areas is a lot more expensive than it is in the urban areas. There has to be some recognition that low-income uh, Americans uh, don't have access to high-speed broadband because it costs too much. And so the strategy also has to recognize that we don't have to subsidize private investment, but we have to create a playing field where they expand their reach way beyond what they're doing now. And I, I think it's possible to do it. I'm, I'm pretty excited about the long-term implications. In the short run, we got to get beyond the election and get out of the hyper-partisanship and heal some wounds a little bit. And maybe this could be a conversation that happens in January with, a, uh, with the passage of whatever economic support is going to be forthcoming from Congress. Well, I can tell you that we would love to see that and our sleeves are rolled up and ready to help. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to thank you so much, Governor Bush, for sharing your insight and for calling attention to this important need. You bet. Thanks for what you do. We appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. I'll put a link up to the Slate op-ed in the description of this podcast. In addition, Governor Bush is on Twitter at Jeb Bush. And you can follow Excellence in Education Organization at Excel in Ed. That's E-X-C-E-L. I-N-E-D. I'm Jessica Denson. Thanks for listening to Connected Nation. If you like our show and want to know more about us, head to ConnectedNation.org or look for the latest episodes of Connected Nation on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Pandora, or Spotify.